0: and um, I hope everyone is well this evening. Um, just to say welcome to you all to this online event. Um, my name is Dr. akid Ahmed and I am the Senior Academic Developer for Inclusive Education at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm really pleased to be here to pre- welcome Professor Paul Warmington and Professor Sabina Watt to the LSE today. The conversation is hosted by LSE Embrace, which is LSE's Black and Minority Ethnic Staff Network and the LSE's Eden Centre for Educational Enhancement, which focuses on academic staff development, curriculum enrichment and digital innovation. The discussion here greatly connects to the work of the Eden Centre, which we are doing around inclusive education, which is also directly related to the LSE's 2030 strategy. With the launch of the LSE's Race Equity Framework last year, the Eaton Centre is committed to having the important conversations around anti-racism to address it at a structural level at the LSE and beyond to improve the experience of our students and academics in our community. LSE Embrace is also hosting this event as the launch of, of for their By Any Means Necessary, an event series which will explore activism, advocacy and resilience. More information about this event will be shared in the LSE's Embrace newsletter, so please do sign up to the mailing list. This event is being hosted on a historical day. Today is the day in 1990 when Nelson Mandela was released from jail after 27 years served on Robben Island. A few years later, in 1993, there would be protests in the streets of London for the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Today is also the 56th anniversary of a speech Malcolm X gave in the old building at LSE where he discussed some of the independence movements happening across Africa and the movement of black people within the United States, where it is now Black History Month. It is therefore important that we are now talking about critical race theory and black radical tradition. So for those of you um, on Twitter, the hashtag for today's event, which I'm sure will be posted in the chat is CRT at LSE. Obviously this is an online event and it's being recorded and we hope everything going well, um, it will be released as a podcast. As usual, there will also be a chance for you to put your questions to each speaker. So to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screens. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will pose as many to the speakers as possible. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students also, so please do let us know. As was said previously, today we'll be discussing critical race theory and the black radical tradition and the work being done to address structural racism in the field of education specifically. In October of last year, Boris Johnson and some MPs in the UK government denounced critical race theory without clear understanding around the history of CRT. This is not the conversation we'll focus on responding to that critique but we want to focus on the original intentions of CRT and its connections to the work that has been done by black and brown scholars and intellectuals for decades and to address structural racism. To discuss these topics, we're really lucky to have two amazing speakers, Professor Warmington and Professor Vaught. I will introduce their bios right before the presentation so it's all fresh in your minds. I'm gonna start with um, Professor Paul Warmington. So Paul is a professor in the Department of Education Studies at the University of Warwick. Paul has taught, written and researched on issues of race, class, education and social justice for over 30 years. He was one of the first UK academics to explore critical race theory and has written about CRT's development in the British context. He has worked in higher education since 2000, teaching, researching and writing extensively on sociological and cultural aspects of education. Prior to this, Professor Warmington taught for 11 years in further education, specialising in English and in Black Studies. He teaches at BA, master's and doctoral levels. His recent writing focuses race, equality and education policy and vocational education. Over to you, Paul, thank you, everyone.
1: Hi, uh, thank you. And I was gonna say it was great to see you all here, but I'm, I'm kind of imagining you, I, I know you're there. And I'd just like to start off by thanking um, Akila and Kenna, Marianne, and the whole of the EMBRACE group uh, as well as the events team and the technical team for putting together tonight. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting evening. So, um, um, Akila's just introduced me. I guess I'm one of uh, Britain's relatively few black professors. I currently work in the Department of Education Studies at the University of, of Warwick. But I work in education in the widest sense. You know, I'm as interested in, in how hairdressers or or engineers learn as I am in 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 schools or universities Um, and my work also maybe my passion is exploring um black intellectual and educational traditions in relation to wider histories of black political movements in the UK so that that work that kind of ranges across what Paul Gilroy called the the black Atlantic um, and, and it's there in the flow of Black Atlantic thought that I first encountered critical race theory. Now, um, you know, I, I, I didn't come into higher education, into academia till I was like about 37. Um, you know, so I, I kind of grew up with the street politics of the 1980s. And where I, where I encountered uh, the Black intellectual tradition primarily was not in the university. You know, it, it was in community centers and on marches, in, 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 in reading groups and so forth. Um and so when i first in, encountered critical race theory um i didn't even particularly think of it as something distinct uh, i mean it, it kind of feel, felt to me as part of, of that longer black radical flow um it had similarities with things i've been reading by you know tony morrison's non fiction or, or even older work by 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 cedric um robinson and 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 and, and so forth um so uh in one sense, I, I as I say, I, I didn't kind of think, "Oh gosh, here is critical race theory," but of course uh, now we all have a sense of what critical race theory is, I guess, and partly that is because of the incident that the the, 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 the killer referred to. But what happened was that in October 2020, in the House of Commons, um, there was a a uh, debate that was kind of motioned by the Labour Party, and it was on Black History Month, and it discussed decolonising the curriculum, structural racism in education and so forth, and a couple of Conservative MPs took particular issue with with even even raising the issue of Black History Month in in Parliament, because, you know, for for people who are very anti-anti-racist, as I I would call them, uh, as we know, it's kind of making racism visible, and making Black identities visible that is the problem, not racism itself. Um, So, one of the Tory MPs took offense and said that talking in terms of black history and black history month uh, suggested that Britain was not a country that was in his words, based on merit and character. And he was very offended by this, this suggestion. And then you had another MP, uh, the, an, an equalities minister of all things, who said that CRT had to be rejected because it was quote, an ideology that sees my blackness as victimhood and their white people's whiteness as oppression. And I want to be absolutely clear that this government stands against critical race theory. And when I heard this, I, I, I thought, wow, you know, you know a, a government's against an intellectual tradition. You know, what, what else are they against? You know, post-structuralism, cubism. You know, I don't know. Um, but let's think of them again. What what is it that this government is is supposedly against, and 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 why? Well, uh, I guess the first thing I would say is that is that yeah. Um, the government probably should be against critical race theory because critical race theory takes issue with so much of what our government stands for. What is critical race theory? Well, I mean, in essence, I would say that it, it, it's it's a, it's a, a race conscious intervention. It's an analytical framework for understanding the way in which institutions in our society reproduce the racial order, reproduce racism, reproduce racial hierarchies so critical race theory regards race above racism above all else as being normal as being endemic so again we often uh hear hear you know uh, cries and 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 yeah outrage at particularly extreme examples of racism you know violent racism extreme racism but critical race theory says no 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 the, 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 those are only the extremes racism is normal it's daily and so critical race theory's job its purpose is to actually understand and to try to intervene in the ways in which our institutions uh, education media law actually work to reproduce racialized structures work to reproduce racialized social orders so uh why, why, I wonder, has there been such antipathy to critical race theory in parts of the UK? Because it isn't just the, uh, the current Conservative government, uh, in parts of academia also there's been a, 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 a great antipathy towards critical race theory. And, I, and I've, 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 I've written about this, and part of it I think is, um, is, is atavistic. I think the UK has always had a deep suspicion of race-conscious politics, of race-conscious thought. But also, and even some critical race theorists don't like this when I say it, I think one of the things about critical race theory is that it is profoundly pessimistic. Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory, describes racism as permanent, as a permanent dimension, a permanent element of modern societies. So racism is permanent and that doesn't mean that anti-racist action is, is pointless, Uh, And and not all reform is pointless either. What it means is that these reforms uh, and these actions, uh, these measures, these policies. um, Don't signal the end of racism as a social fault line in our society, they don't single signal the end of racism as an axis of conflict. In fact, uh, many critical race theorists um, have argued that much supposedly Uh, anti-racist legislation and policy actually serves to sustain forms of racism at manageable levels rather than actually eradicating racism. And that these reforms anyway only tend to take place at moments of what critical race theory describes as interest convergence. In other words, when for the elite, when for the powers that be, um, acting against racism is the lesser of two of two evils so um, how did critical race theory arrive in the uk in the usa critical race theory was born in the 1980s out of critical legal studies but critical race theory didn't really uh, embed itself initially in in legal studies in the uk i would argue the point that it really uh, embedded itself and we're talking here in the early part of the the 2000, 2003, 2004, 2005, critical race theory embedded itself in um, education and education research in the UK. And that doesn't surprise me because what has happened in the USA was that uh, critical race theory had already made that leap from legal studies to looking at education through the work of people like uh, Gloria Ladson-Billings and Bill Tate and Adrian Dixon, Deuce Leonardo and so forth. And it was through contact with those US educators that uh, race critical educators in the UK began to draw upon critical race theory, very much in that period of around 2003 to around 2006. It's unsurprising because I mean, I've argued repeatedly in my work that education um, is one of the fundamental Political spaces um, in 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 black and brown life in in Britain. I've argued that it was really in the schools that much of what it meant to be black or brown and British was actually fought out. You know, it was the red lines in the schoolrooms, and most of all, you know, what happened was, you know, after the, what we call the Windrush period, you know, what you had was in the nineteen sixties, you had. The first kind of flow of your know, Caribbean and Asian and some African children into British schools and it was at that moment that British society uh, and its education system realised well oh my gosh these people they're not going home they are a permanent part of British society and that's when the fun of course really really started so yeah uh, education, again, you can think of many, many uh, thinkers, activists, uh, You know, John LaRose, Eric and uh, Jessica Huntley, Jan McKinley, Farouk Dondi, who, you know, who all came out of education movements. So, uh, you know, education, education, uh, research, um, and so forth, you know, we, we kind of write something like critical race theory. And 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 I think in, in that period, 2003, 4, five, six, and beyond, again, the critical race theory became the place where the energy was in terms of, uh, again, exploring issues of race, racism and education. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to kind of sort of um, sort of uh, uh, preempt what's going to be said later on in our, in our, in our conversations and what Sabina is going to say. But again, just a few thoughts on, on where we currently are. That whole um, uh, announcement in the House of Commons, I think, is important um, because, as Akila said, in many ways, we don't want to respond to that because I mean, I always say that a lot of this critique of critical race theory, trying to actually uh, respond to it as if it were a critique of critical race theory itself, is a bit like trying to respond to Islamophobia as if it were a theological debate. You know, it's got very little to do with the content of critical race theory. Uh, but it probably has a lot to do, as I said, with that kind of atavistic suspicion in the UK about race conscious thought and politics. It has a lot to do with the government's desire. To use a kind of element of of, of, of culture warring uh, in its politics in the lead up to the the next um, election, um, but again, you know, there have been precedents for all of this. You know, back in the nineteen eighties, we had vicious culture wars. Then, you know, people talked about the loony left and, and whatever. Um, so, you know, I'm 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 kind of ready, um, and uh, I think yeah, that's that's enough for the moment. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Paul, and keeping to time as well. So thank you. <laughs> um, so next, um, again, a brilliant speaker and um, academic amongst us, Professor Sabina Vaught, who is an inaugural chair of the new Department of Teaching and Learning, and is leading in the School of Education at the University of Pittsburgh. <clears throat> Prior to joining the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh in 2020, Professor Vaut was a scholar in resident at the Simpson Center for the Humanities at the University of Washington. At the University of Oklahoma, she established the Castle Studies Consortium. In her scholarly work, Professor Vaut draws on the constellation of knowledge tradition that helped make sense of the insurgent and counterinsurgent movements in education. That's where I was, sorry. <laughs> Professor, yes, sorry. Sorry, her most sorry, my mistake. Her most recent book, Compulsory Education and a Dispossession of Youth in Prison Schools, is an ethnographic study inside a US state juvenile prison schooling system. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your views as well. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Akile. And thank you, Paul. That's um, <clears throat> challenging to follow. Uh, I want to thank LSE Embrace, Marianne Mokini, the chair, and Ikenna Acholanu, who's the deputy chair, and also someone I've known for 14 years, I realized this morning, um, which is odd because I'm only 28. Um LSE Eden Center, um, the LSE Public Lecture Program team, Nicholas Martin and Nick Berger, who are, are of LSE Comms and Events, and the staff, all staff working on this. Of course, Paul, thank you for uh, graciously agreeing to share the conversation with me today. Uh, I join you all today from the land and near the rivers originally in the care and protection of the Adena and Hopewell Nations the Osage tribe and the Monongahela peoples and shared over time by many indigenous nations as a place of gathering and exchange as a process of rematriation. I acknowledge our connection to place and honor the land as a relative. I'm also joining you today on what um, Akile mentioned is a special Anniversary and um, Ekena had originally shared with me that 56 years ago today Malcolm X spoke at the London School of Economics. uh, Sadly, of course, ten days before he was assassinated. Um, But in reading through the remarks he shared at LSE, I was struck, as Akile mentioned, by his attention to the revolutionary movements across Africa as models and inspirations for movements for liberation the world over, and one of the central features of liberation at that time, at the time he spoke, uh, was this collective resistance to colonial law, meant to support and maintain colonists' repressive drive for, among other things, exploited and exploitable labor forces. So law was always the fascist marriage of globally militarized governments and capital or corporate interests. So when Malcolm X visited 56 years ago, there were groups such as Limo in Mozambique that were practicing collective organizing for liberation from these colonial regimes. And they were doing that through self determined education, work, politics, and more. But I think what's of note is that while such anti colonial movements mobilized for total independence uh, from colonial control for self determination, They often organized politically in this studied opposition to specific laws that codified global racialized occupation. So now, today, we're witnessing in India the largest labor strike in history, or largest known labor strike in history. And this is one among um, agricultural laborers, farmers, and other Workers And the movement is resisting fascist regimes of labor exploitation and, that are amplified by contemporary global corporate political collusion and they're racial, they're ecocidal, they're genocidal, femicidal, carceral. But the catalyzing spark for this current labor strike was the Indian state's imposition of a law. And this is a law that promises to further devastate an already precarious um set of conditions for farmers and other agricultural workers, and to line the already very deep pockets of multinational corporations and governments. So I draw that connection to observe a few themes. So first, as we know, empire is, among many other things, a racial project of resource and labor extraction and exploitation that gets cemented and re-cemented through law. And that while empire is indeed crumbling around us, it's uh, by no stretch of the imagination gone. Um, second, that since European powers extended their, their really millennia long practice of racialized colonization from inside their own geography and social organization to outside of it, resistance and revolution have been constant. They have been uninterrupted and they've been projects of deep study tethered to conditions of daily life drawn from ontologic epistemic knowledge traditions that both precede and supersede the dominant academic conventions of the West. And third, that uh, as my friend Damian Sojourner points out, the means of control is always a counter move. It's always an indication of where colonial powers not only perceive the possibility for gain, but also, and I think, Paul, you were pointing to this, where and how they perceive the political epistemic strength of the people they seek to dominate. So law provides this very clear window onto the counter forces of state rule. Um, I think the UK political establishment's fixation on Critical race theory is perhaps then both the illumination of the state's particular impulses and designs on racial control through law and education and its unwitting confession, very public confession of their vulnerability so that they tether their, their very baldly uninformed attacks on CRT, as Paul pointed out, to attacks on anti-capitalist discourse in schools is also further revealing of their belief that the entrenchment of educational institutions, structural racism is in fact essential to keeping alive the dying racial capitalist order. So in in other words, sort of keeping alive this global uh, fascism that gets us back to the strike in India. And I think sort of moreover, this this feigned moral indignity of regimes that are built on racial exploitation and the attendant narrowing of knowledge simply mirrors the level of threat that they, and, and I think those who parrot their logics, including academics, experience when they're faced with expressions of freedom. And these expressions are anchored in rich and expansive knowledge traditions. So, to CRT, as Paul mentioned, the original CRT theorists were legal scholars in the US who had a very uh, rigorously sophisticated and deeply nuanced understanding of US legal doctrine, documents, precedent, and so on. But they also understood the relationship between law and ideologies of domination. So, very simply, They understood that law is not just handed down from a sovereign power to its citizenry, but rather it's a product of this always negotiated, very uneven relationships among a dominant, in this case, colonial supremacist citizenry, the nation state and non-dominant people. So, for instance, U.S. contract law was forged over time in this relationship between the plantation block banks and a merchant class and the state and also shaped and transformed by resistance to it. So part of this was a process by which Patricia Williams argues many people became the object of property sort of enslaved or enslavable via these supremacist conditions that were codified and made also ideologically common sense in the structuring of dominant white life. And that's the life that was deterministic of the material conditions of the country. And in turn, as Cheryl Harris points out, whiteness itself became a form of property. So this is again, looking at the legal merger of um, state sovereign power and the ruling white, plantation block and um, investments of the merchant classes. So this form of property that was merged legally and ideologically merged with capitalist humanity, this sort of exclusive right to self-ownership and the freedom from being owned. And again, these were brutal codifications, but they were resisted at every turn without interruption. I think the CRT, the original CRT Scholars Project was this highly focused one, looking at the laws, this point of entry to examine these larger structures, but it has really broad continuing implications, as Paul pointed out. I think the the conceptual interventions, such as whiteness as property, help us not only understand law and it's sort of the dynamic force, but also help us map the movement of power um, across dimensions, across institutions. So the original scholars always understood race as inherently constituted by and constitutive of other hierarchical systems, such as gender and citizenship. And I think Maybe said differently, racial subordination is not the same as other forms of oppression. That's a dangerous analytic, as we know, or a political frame that sort of moves to ignore the specificities of violence. Um, But it's foundationally and inextricably linked to and interacting with and co-produced by other forms. So the original scholars also understood the complexity of structural racism's material expression in society's dominant institutions, such as universities. And this is where I see the original, um, the reach of that original CRT movement uh, outside and inside the US as particularly powerful and promising in its model of how to intricately map these tethered subordinating systems and in so doing to, to mobilize anti-subordination strategies. Uh, as legal scholar and my friend Jeremiah Chin argues, CRT is at heart an anti subordination framework that upends supremacist positivism or objectivism in one of the most staunch apparatuses of colonial control. And that's not the, only the law and its sort of vast ideology, but the university and its systems of scholarly thought that continuously co produce subordination of knowledge and people, and yet, as scholars and students of the Black radical tradition, such as Robin Kelly tell us all the time, universities are also powerful sites of fugitive, insurgent, and self-determined thought and study. So I think central to CRT's anti-subordination framework is the acknowledgement, and again, um, Paul described this, this sort of acknowledgement that subordination exists, racism exists, um, it's the deep structure of dominant institutions and ideologies, and there's no need to prove it. There, this is sort of a tired demand of supremacist colonial administrators, whether they're occupying seats of government or chairs in universities. Rather, we need to understand the, its long history in thought. So in Europe, in part, the merger of monasticism and dominant science and its current expressions. So returning to CRT as a legal framework, I think we're reminded of the maneuvers of law in the UK and the US that were and are aligned with the production of scholarly conventions, including anthropological and sociological sciences, science, historiography, academic production that served supremacist colonial ends, as my friend Brian Brayboy so carefully delineated, and I think many other scholars have detailed. So I think CRT might have us wonder at the university, what are the ways in which staunch fidelity to dominant dominant Euro-epistemic notions of science get activated to exclude theoretical movements such as CRT? And how do these academic conventions serve as surveillance of thought and thinkers and create repercussions for the material world? and where and how do we see that mechanized? Um, And I think, again, importantly, and what are the movements of revolutionary or free thought and action that these epistemic enactments are moving against? Another thing I think CRT might have us wonder at the university is how does the discourse of demographics and sort of, in quotation marks, bodies serve the supremacist institution? So I think considering the ways in which diversity and inclusion frameworks delimit the conversation by talking about how many individual black students staff or faculty are on a campus without tethering people to epistemic polit- political cultural and and many other traditions and ways of knowing and organizing so diversifying the imperial university or including individual bodies into it does something for certain, but it does little to incorporate genuine freedom, liberation, or equity into the core structure and mechanisms. So what CRT might help people consider at LSE or at the University of Pittsburgh is not just how to hire more Black leaders, faculty, or staff, or how to admit more Black students, which of course needs to happen. And is sort of self-evident or obvious, but rather, I think, as Malcolm X said, 56 years ago today, how to refuse that as the primary effort. He was describing white state-controlled schooling in the U.S. and he said, quote, so they come up only with tokenism and this tokenism that they give us benefits only a few. So such tokenism splits people among colonially determined groups and then argues for populating certain corners of a university while entrenching the university as it is. And I think Stuart Hall uh, brilliantly, expansively really pushed us to consider the problematics and limitations of identity. So CRT might ask, what are the structures and how might they be transformed? What might it mean to have black curricular pedagogical epistemic ontological traditions as core to the work of departments and disciplines and governance in the university. I think the descriptive responses and the local to each institution of course as well, responses to these CRT driven questions would offer a blueprint for the disruption and abolition of subordinating systems, structures, ideologies alongside the collective imagining and building of new and free ones. I think the freedom CRT calls for, this sort of material epistemic freedom, just freedom of thought in undoing repressive systems isn't a a flipping of those systems. It's sort of, um, again, as an anti-subordination theory, CRT suggests to us that while some may be able to buy more, assert more, or control more, or live more. Those are not conditions of freedom, but it's abuses. And so I think in undoing those and building a different university or society from those knowledge traditions that precede and supersede the dominant ones, there's a a future in which everyone is free. So I see the, the British government very um, concerned with conversation about white privilege and white guilt. And while I I in some ways agree that those are ineffective pedagogical and curricular areas of focus, not for the reasons they think so, you know, they didn't read because CRT has nothing to do with that. That's just sort of this like trendy junk that people are making a lot of money off of right now. I think these are, these attacks and, And I read that they're framing these, as Paul said, as culture wars. These are culture wars. These are acts of empire. And empire always practices its racial colonial projects at home first and last. And so I think these thrashings are symptoms of the weakening force of empire, which is going to seek to hold on to its asymmetrical power but it's also revealing its its sites of vulnerability, which of course are are shifting. So I think it's useful to think about the context of the racial regime within which LSE is doing its work, the insurgent possibilities from which you all already draw and the, the call really to study the university and its course. And I think this comes in some ways from pairing critical race theory with other traditions Um, as the title of this event suggests, with the Black radical tradition, among others. And this might illuminate, I think, what Cedric Robinson really carefully showed us, that racial regimes are deeply brutal, but they are also foundationally fragile. And to see that capacious knowledge traditions have really long been active and can be the source of reimagining and insisting on and building the university that you all want, that we all want.
0: So thank you. Thank you so much, Sabina. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, I mean, absolutely wonderful to hear from you both and some really fantastic points. And and kind of struck me, given the work that I'm trying to do at LSE, it really spoke to me. And I really appreciated what you said, Sabina, about the kind of performativity of EDI and, and the way it is seen as very tokenistic. We never talk about the overrepresentation of whiteness in our institutions. We always talk about adding diversity. And I think that is really important. And one thing that Paul also said is that those spaces, those informal spaces that were encountered, of CRT, of the readings and being introduced to people like Paul Gilroy didn't often happen in university spaces and that's so important those kind of informal interactions and how schools and education and CRT have come into the UK and how very slow we've been actually on the uptake and to even talk about I certainly was never taught CRT theory at all and had to learn that myself so I mean, it's a really important debate that we're having tonight. And um, I'm going to pose some questions um, to you both. One thing that that always strikes me in the work that I do and in conferences and in, and in meetings um, is is the discussion often then goes into, well, we need to talk about intersectionality. So obviously Kimberly Crenshaw um, who is a critical race scholar and, and also spent some time at the LSE a couple of years ago she I mean I'm not going to give you a whole history of her work but just you know her work was around the protection of black women and immigrant women dealing with intersecting forms of subordinates. So it's now become a really popular term so often you'll go into a session you'll go into a meeting and people say well what about intersectionality and I'd really like to unpack, so how how should intersectionality be used, particularly if we think about CRT and in the educational context as well, and in higher education and within the policies as well that we try to develop and work with. So I open it to you both. So,
1: so, so, so,
0: Sabine,
1: you do start you want start to? It. You, sir. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hard. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely really, really uh, get what you're saying, Aquila. Um because I don't know, in 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 the UK, you know, it, it seems to me that no, that almost no sooner was was um, intersectionality kind of born as an important political concept than it was kind of incorporated into very often the kind of blandest forms of you know inclusion and diversity talk within institutions. Um, so very often, what happens today is is you get intersectionality used used tactically by people who aren't interested in in, you know who who just aren't interested in 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 the realities of, of oppression or resistance so either intersectionality just becomes a way of making sure that you tick every identity box you know um uh, and and it's a way of kind of describing someone's identity in 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 a rounded way, which is kind of fine. But, that's, but that but that that's not the political purpose of intersectionality. Or else intersectionality is used as as a decoy, you know. So you start talking about race, uh, or you start talking about sexuality. I mean, someone says, "Oh no, but you know, we've also got to consider all these other you know five five things." Um, so you know, again, you know. The roots of intersectionality, as, as as Kimberly Crenshaw kind of developed, I mean, where did she develop it? I mean, you know, my understanding is, is that she developed it in, in a redundancy case at, at one of the Ford plants, yeah, where you have black women being made disproportionately redundant, and that you you know, they they go to Ford, and Ford say, say, uh, oh, no, no, we're, we're not being racist, you know, uh, because we, we've got all these black men working here, and we're not being sexist because we've got all these women working here and cringe will says but hang on yeah <laughs> you yeah. see but where the two come together your black women uh you know, that's where you're practicing you know your oppression that's where you're practicing your discrimination so you know so intersectionality uh you know it's it, it's nothing you know if it isn't absolutely political and if it isn't absolutely about identifying exactly where oppression discrimination you know, are, are are being targeted. You know, that that's that's what it's for. You know, it's not a kind of of uh, of, of of a way of kind of painting people in in rainbow colours as lovely as that must be. You know, it has a political purpose in identifying the precise nature of discrimination as it occurs within institutions. You know, because you know forms of oppression, forms of discrimination are, are constantly shifting and they're constantly mutating. And I think that's a really, really important thing that intersectionality helps us to understand that very often, and I think you know, Eduardo uh, um, uh, you know, make makes this, this, this kind of point that, that one of the ways in which we get distracted from uh, the, the kind of issues that we want to address is that uh, we're told, well, this this can't be racism. Because it doesn't look like racism looked 50 years ago, so we we, we get these 50-year-old or, or or whatever uh, you know models of racism ho- you know held up to us. And if what's happening for, to us on the ground now doesn't look like what happened during the civil rights era or what happened when when people first came to to to, to the UK from the Caribbean or Asia, we're told, well, yeah, you know, it's not racism. You know, intersectionality helps us to understand the specificity of uh, oppression, discrimination, and it helps us to understand it. Yeah, you know, it's shifting your mutable qualities also. So
2: So I'm not sure how it's being taken up in particular there. I sort of gathered a little bit from what you just said, Paul, but I think part of the issue is that it devolves into um, an identity framework. And again, Stuart Hall dealt with identity (laughs) and then Jose Munoz and then a whole bunch of people. And so I, 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 in some ways, I think it's this um, sort of um, indirect route to re-upping very reductive and controlling uh, notions of identity. And I think to your point, if you look at what Crenshaw wrote originally and continued to write and talk about, for instance, women in the U.S. who... Um, do not have state-issued documentation, who speak languages other than English, and who are um, dealing with violent systems of misogyny, then have to access resources. And those resources are mediated by policy and law. And they're mediated in ways that completely um, purposefully ignore or erase the existence of such life and so then the resources are unavailable so i think intersectionality as a mapping tool and and understanding how law policy and resources get purposefully asymmetrically distributed or withheld or punished uh, are used as a tool of punishment or um Withholding, it, then it moves away from from this sort of what I hear you're you're experiencing the UK is this sort of um, m- multicultural identity politic that's really in itself a racist move, um, and it gets us back to the question of how um, race is multiply constituted. That's not a dilution. That's actually a complication of a very um, entrenched power structure.
0: and if I may Paul ask you a question um in your recent paper you 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 do a, a good a great job of tracing the kind of history of CRT in the UK um and your reference to Stuart Hall's work and this idea of Mary Douglas's matters out of place really struck me in that piece of work but it's also highlighting one thing that I'm this, this question always gets posed to me as well. And I'd like to get both yours and Sabina's thoughts in that the objectivity of class and the subjectivity of race, which is a very popular conversation that happens in, in UK, HE, is that you are always faced with the class question. And given that we've just spoken about intersectionality, I wonder how would you advise or what are your thoughts on how to actually deal with that resistance I mean it is about resistance and white discomfort that we spoke about slightly earlier but um yeah
1: yeah <laughs> uh, I'm oh oh gosh okay, okay uh so I mean yeah I mean it, 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 this is one of the kind of standard deflections that we have you know in conversations about race you know so uh, uh you know it was a, it was a phrase that I think my, my colleague Shireen he had oh yeah we say race they say class so one thing that critical race theory does is to um, to completely refute the idea that that that, that, you know, that race is merely a subjective and 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 a true objective relationship. Um, you know, I, I I know it's kind of unfashionable, and um, uh, you know, it's it's kind of unfashionable and yeah, not always useful to to, to use that old kind of Marxist understanding of of of, of base and superstructure. You know, but basically, what critical race theory is saying is, is no, you know, race race is there. It's it, it, it's in the base. It is the base. You know, racial capitalism. Um, so you know, one of the things that I often say that there 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 are a dozen ways in which you could kind of refute this argument, um, and you will have to come up with a dozen more because there's always going to be something else that's raised. But what 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 I always say is 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 one, when people say that well, it's, it's about class. What they are almost inevitably saying is it's about class as lived by white, heterosexual men, you know? And that's that's, that's that's a valid experience of class, but it's only one, and it's, and it's a fairly small experience globally, um, is one thing. Um, so therefore, often when we talk about, well, well, what do people think race is? You know, to, to talk about race has to be to talk about class also, you know? But because it doesn't look like the dialogues and debates around class that we've had traditionally in the UK, then we're told we're not talking about class. The other thing that I always say is, well, you know, the class warriors, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of there too with them. Go back and read, read Engels, you know, and then read the later Russian work by people like Leontiev, and they talk about the importance of the tool. And what I say race is, you know, what race is, it's a tool for ordering society, yeah? And tools have materiality, and therefore your know, race is as real as any other Tool. it's as real as any other material any other material so your race is is also absolutely objective and what race is not is merely a kind of epiphen- epiphenomenon of class that, that, that won't convince them you know but again there are a few things you can pull out of your pocket there you know
0: but it's a persistent conversation that oh, doesn't yeah. go away um, Sabina, I don't know if you wanted to respond, yeah.
2: Sure, I mean, I think in part, this is the purposeful ahistoricism or the purposeful amnesia of supremacist, that narrow supremacist thought, because the, the frame, even the framing is a misunderstanding of the development of capitalism. So capitalism was developed in Europe as a racial project. Amongst people who now consider themselves of one race, but was was absolutely a project in racialism and racialization, and that that um, shifting of who's white and what's Europe is an interesting, I mean, Thinking about Ireland as a plantation experiment and and how that was played out and what that looked like. And that's not to suggest um, that um, the sort of human and and other plunder of the continent of Africa was not a specific shift. But I I think the idea that there's capitalism and then there's a sort of race comes in historically or comes in geographically or comes in in certain corporate contexts is just to mistake that capitalism always from its birth was a racial project, always. And so I, I think that um, that's why I find it interesting that the UK government is um, upset about CRT and anti-capitalism together because those are are telling you something about where their racial uh, fears are and their racial their desire for racial domination.
1: And, 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 and I think I mean I, I, I absolutely you know absolutely second what what's, what Sabina says there. You know, and, and again, you know, I, I mean, I'd, I'd kind of urge everyone to, to go away, read Sabina, read Robin D.G. Kelly, read Cedric Robinson for understanding, and for understandings of of, of of racial capitalism. And I think also, you know, that tendency to want to see race as this kind of belated addition, mm-hmm. you know, to social structure. Yeah, <laughs> is, is is also something that, you know, that uh, it's a, academia is particularly guilty, you know. And we have to kind of be aware that what, what, academia const- what academia often does is merely to reproduce racial hierarchies, you know, in the mode of academic thought, you, you know. So because black people are lesser, because black lives are lesser, then understandings and, 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 and theories of racism must be lesser than theories of, of social class. You know, it's, it's, it's just a reproduction of the same old hierarchy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Sabina, just to to expand a little bit more. So people like Cedric Robinson and Robin Kelly um, speak about the black radical tradition and the different black leaders and social movements it connected to. So I wanted to ask you, what connection do you see the black radical tradition having with the movement for black lives now? And what opportunities exist for schools, higher education institutions and communities more generally in engaging with movements like Black Lives Matter? And obviously, Paul as well. Um,
2: That's a huge question. Thank you. <laughs> so, so let me just start in no particular order. And then maybe, Paul, we can bounce back and forth. Um, but I think one um, intervention, ag- again, is to under, well, here are several. One is to understand the history of, um, knowledge traditions that aren't contained by the, the dominant Europe, again, dominant European traditions. We, we talk about these Euro epistemic traditions, but in fact, those are the ones that beat out others that suppressed others. So this dominant one that's reigning right now, but, um, to understand that there were knowledge traditions that, um, again, preceded and superseded this merger of monastic thought and the scientific thought that is self-validating through this idea of testing and retesting and evidence. Um, So I think there's an attention to to knowledge traditions that include the metaphysical, include the ancestral, include, you know, all the ways in which we know what we know, um, and then how those are collectively Enacted. I think the other is again to understand um, when we undertake analyses of systems of subordination or our moments of um, supremacy, to understand again that those are counter moves, to understand these regimes as um, uh, acting. Um, sort of uh, in poor dialectic, <laughs> but in in threatened dialectic to reassert their brutal violent force and to not sort of give um, initial authorship to those. Those regimes are powerful and also really stupid, right? So they're they're flailing, they're thrashing. And to understand, to look at that and see it's always a counter move. This is one thing I think about with CRT has this framework of counter narrative, but I actually think, well, that's the narrative. The state is the counter narrative. The state is what's constantly kind of coming back and trying to suppress freedom. Um, that means the, the movements for freedom always e- exist. So I think that's another um, point of entry with um, with the black radical tradition. There's of course a, a huge labor analysis and we started to get into that by thinking about what actually is capitalism, how' is it structured, what are its origins. Um, I think also this question of what is, Possible, So, you know, in the United States, and, and Du Bois argued this in Black Reconstruction, you know, the, the, what gets called the United States Civil War um, it was not won by attrition or particular battles or particular generals or particular um, executive orders. It was won by a general strike undertaken by enslaved laborers and that that general strike was undertaken under ex- extraordinary circumstances, great risk, um, but also deep, deep uh, knowledge and practice. And among people who um, had to believe the impossible was possible and and would happen and had to happen. And I think that too is sort of part of the Black radical tradition is understanding this um, uninterrupted practice of insisting on the impossible and insisting on it through knowledge and resistance that is um, collective is through an understanding of of labor and that that again sort of supersedes these small containers that have been produced through the ins- institutions such as the university
1: yeah i mean, I mean yeah, yeah no that's that that was kind of too fantastic for me to follow it's just a couple of phrases to pick up on one is the idea uh that the state is the counter narrative is is great and that, that kind of takes me towards you know some of the Again, things I've read by, you know, I mean, I mean, Fred Moten, you know, who I only kind of grasp the ages of. But again, Moten's idea is, 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 is you know, is, is that the state that appears to surround us really is actually the one that's under siege, you know, <laughs> uh, from the rest of us. And again, just just thinking about academia and thinking about the number of arguments and, and appalling experiences I've had had in the last couple of years, which have really come back to that issue of how we know what we know. You know, when you sit across the table from a a colleague uh, who would who would tell you that, well, you know, this 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 paper is not sufficiently evidence. You know, this paper is is not randomized control trial or or, or whatever. How can, how can we know what you claim we know in this in this paper? And I think the, the other thing which kind of, sort of bouncing off, hopefully, what, what Sabina said uh, again. You know, the 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 belief that the impossible impossible can 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 come to be you know uh yeah i i said that you yeah, one of the things that the the the, the derrick bell talks about is, is is the permanence of of racism and that's something i'm kind of thinking about a, a lot at the moment and you know for, for me it, it's a kind of strategic understanding of racism as permanent you know in other words what it be, and, and and it's the same it's, it's the same for pessimism you know what people like bell and and, and Delgado was, for me were saying that you know yeah what we have to be pessimistic about is the current racialized order that can't give us anything, you know. I mean, it can give us some things, the things that we like. But, but you know, you know, uh, that that it, it's almost exhausted in what in, in, in terms of what of what it can give to us in, 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 in modes of liberal reform. So, uh, therefore, what we're pessimistic about is the current order. There are other impossible things that might indeed prove to be possible. And in, again, in terms of understanding race, racism as as, as permanent. You know, it's permanent within this current order. It's integral to this current order. Um, And again, just in tactical, you know, terms, again, it's always best to kind of take that position, you know, uh, that racism is not going to be kind of, you're washed away by a particular uh, policy or a particular formation of an EDI group at your university, you know, uh, until you can actually take me to the place, until we can go together to the place where we are post-racial in the real sense, you're not in the facile sense, then you don't talk to me about, about the kind of end of racism. You know, it, it, for now we think of it as permanent. For now, you know, we again, yeah, we 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 view the current the current order with 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 pessimism. It's something else that that we need.
0: Thank you both. I mean, I have so many more questions, and I but I can't be selfish and ask all the questions. And I'm going to go to the chat and read out some of the questions for you to respond to. So there's a question from Pilar Elizardi a fellow in the International Relations Department. Um, in the framework of CRT, what can we as teachers, lecturers and seminar leaders do not do to reproduce institutional racism and most importantly, to break it? Also, is there any hope for the neoliberal university in this context? It's a big question.
1: Um. <laughs> Uh, okay, um, is is there any hope for the neoliberal university? Uh, well, that's the easiest answer. No, it's, it's probably the basic answer. There, uh, uh, it's it's, uh, but in, in in terms of what of what of what teachers can can do, um, um, yeah, it's kind of difficult one, one, one for for me to answer because I'm I'm always very very wary of trying to kind of wrap critical race theory up as kind of kind of easily applicable teaching package because it, it's not, I mean, for, for me, critical race theory is primarily, you know, uh, a framework for, 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 for analysis, you know. There are things that we can do off the back of that, you know, but, but, but among things that teachers can do, well, first of all, um, and again, you know, my, 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 my friend Gus John you know, talks about this, is that one of the things that schools need to teach, schools need to teach about education, you know, in other words, to actually make you know, the hidden curriculum visible. In other words, one of the things that the schools need to do is to teach again. To teach children about well, what is education? You know, how do we decide what valid knowledge is? Very, very importantly, who benefits and who doesn't benefit from our current education system? How does education reproduce power in terms of race, gender, class and, and so forth? You know, that becomes for me. A kind of bed upon, you know, in, 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 in which, it, or a kind of framework in which to embed work around critical race theory, which can include, yeah, it can include a critical incorporation of, uh, you know, of a critical incorporation of anti racist material a material by black and brown you know, authors and thinkers into the curriculum, course content. I'm not talking here about just diversifying your reading list, you know, that, that, that's, that's not enough. We have to use those authors and their kind of modes of thought and their and, and, and their traditions and understand how their intellectual positions are a critique of you know, what usually passes for education. Um, again, uh, again, as teachers, there are ways in which we can actually work with students, again, to produce collaborative forms of education in which students can begin to actually analyze what, what it is that education does and what education does to them and, 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 and to all of us. And again, you know, and again, you know, I mean, I'm not kind of handing these down as tablets of stone, but you 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 can look you know, even in the last few years at many of the forms of activism that school children and, and university students have been involved in, which are linking their lives to the lives of, of, of the wider community. You know whether that's about environmental issues or whether it's about black lives matter, you know, that yeah so the students and, and as I say the school children they they went and did yeah you know, they, they did that they 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 made those links. Um so you know there there are anti-racist pedagogy and, and again that's one way of understanding it. Um, but yeah I mean so so the, you know there, there are practical, there are practical things that that we that we can do. Um, but again, a lot a lot of what we have to do in education also is 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 I'm afraid it, it is structural, you know, it, it kind of isn't just contained within the classroom. Uh that there's a lot that we have to do um in terms in terms of the of the, the structures of our universities, the, the structures of our schools. And and that's really tough because that 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 does involve kind of you know taking you know, taking the yeah. Yeah. Taking take command of certain parts of the institution where where we are not we're not in command at all. You know, that's that's okay. That I'll 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 stop there.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll add just a, a few things. One is this, you know, the question about the neoliberal university. I mean, ne- neoliberalism is not salvageable, but it's um, stoppable. And I think the question, though, about the university is an important one. And and this is something my colleague, Damien Sojourner, and I talk about because, you know, and I don't know if this is true in the UK, but the work on abolition is is very old in the US, but just only very recently popular. Um, and so now everybody wants to abolish everything <laughs> without really knowing what they mean by that. And. Um, and and I think we have to be careful because, you know, if you take, for instance, the, the comparison, and I'm not a big fan of comparisons, but just for the sake of this conversation, the institution of the prison and the institution of the school, you can say there are mirroring architectures, practices, structures, mechanisms, everything, right? That there's this alignment. And you have to say, have movements for freedom, collectives, communities, ever said, "Let's build a prison for freedom, for self determination"? No. Have they ever said, "Let's build a school"? Yes, all the time, and that's not because they have some sort of um, clouded consciousness, right? That that education has promise and it has the promise for freedom, and so I think. Um, stepping back from an, a nihilistic approach about the university and and i think ruth wilson gilmore talks about this beautifully and i'm not gonna um do as well as she might so you know google her and and watch her interviews but you know the the, the university if we can again sort of do the impossible if we can insist on it being really a place of knowledge and knowledge relationality we need it right and we need more people we need everybody who wants to have access to have access to it and we need no prisons and so i think we have to this is one of the things that crt gives us maybe pedagogically is you know one of the critiques was like well people have already been writing about race and white supremacy and racism so why crt well it was highly specific, again, sort of anchored in, in legal and ideological studies of race and white supremacy. And it gives them a kind of model for how students can understand study as a deep well, as um, a movement, you know, it's the critical race theory movement. So scholarship can be a movement and that it's collective. And so I do think that within the university, there's space. And, and back to, to Harney and Moten, as you mentioned, Paul, and to many other thinkers, the university can be usurped, stolen from, reconfigured, all of those things to be a site of, of radical, collective, thinking, learning, studying. Um, and so I think not, not giving up on the university, but but sh- but insisting on shifting its purpose and its focus
1: no yeah and and, and uh, yeah and, and again I, I do like i like that idea that again you know, you know, hani moten you know, the just the whole idea of kind of yeah of stealing of taking what you need what we need from from the university uh and, and just again just going back to the, I think just the really simple but i think important point in terms of what teachers can do is 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 that we don't teach that so we don't teach about education we don't teach about education systems or or what they do you know even even in 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 you yeah you know, i mean i, I work in a, in, a, in an education studies department you know and and we're kind of the, the absolute low people on the totem pole in academia we're kind of at the bottom you know uh because to practice both based or, or 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 whatever you know uh but but, but, but again you know the importance of education studies is, is that we don't teach about education. And even, even in universities, when I show some of our university colleagues um, basic things like a bar chart showing the difference in attainment between children who are on free school meals and children who are not, you know, or a difference you know, uh, in, in university attainment between white British pupils, uh, sorry, undergraduates and, and black undergraduates, you know, and, and it comes as a shock, you know, maybe... Maybe yeah, maybe go into a schoolroom, you know, and show your year nine or your 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 year ten students that bar chart which shows the difference in attainment across decades between pupils who are on free school meals, who are in poverty, and pupils who are not, you know, and get them to think about that. Why is it that happens, and why is it it just never ever shifts, you know? Okay.
0: Thanks, Paul. Um, Yeah, I agree with both of you. Um, It always astounds me when people are shocked when you show those charts. Um, We have a a really interesting question, actually. Does the fact that CRT views racism as permanent partly explain the pushback against it? Should we be more optimistic about a future where racism no longer exists?
1: Uh, Sabine, do you want to to start? You go ahead. Um. Yes, because again, the I think the pushback, and, and again, yes, Sabina has has, has alluded to it here, the, the the pushback against CRT. That pushback against the idea that racism is permanent. you know, what that's really about is is as I said earlier on, you know, critical race theory is not saying that, that any kind of anti-racist activity or any kind of, of, of reform is, is useless and, and not worth bothering with. What it's saying is, is that within the current racialized and capitalist structure, you know, those kinds of liberal reform do not in themselves you know, uh, vanish racism, you know? they, don't, they, they don't wash it away. It's still there as a, a fault line in our society. Um, and of course, you, I mean I, I, that that kind of that rejection of liberal forms of anti-racism, um, you know, the, the the kind of glass beads of, of, of this new policy or that new policy or, or, or that regulation within a university, uh, you know, that really uh, I, I I I think is what is, is, is what a lot of the is where a lot of the antipathy to, to critical race theory is. is Generate it's 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 that audacity in rejecting those liberal forms of of, of, of race equality, um, and uh, <laughs> be, 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 because because clearly um, what we live with constantly is, is a, a sort of um, you know is is the kind of the kind of promotion of, of facile forms of post racism or post-racialism uh which are really the kind of work of political scroungers you know people who want conservative politicians who want something for nothing you know they want us to say yes 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 racism or racial struggle is over you know without any real kind of difficulty without any real kind of change you know uh without any fundamental change so um again you you have uh what, what the writer Philip Henshaw referred to as, as the performance of sympathy, which is this constant intervention in the lives of, of, of BME people and other minority groups, which says, you know, they're there, you know, there's no need for you to kind of go on struggling, no need, no need for you to go on shouting, because look, we've, we've done all this, you know, we, we, we've given you, you know, we've given you race equality laws and we've given you marriage rights and, and whatever, we, we've done it all. You know, you can shut up now, shut up, you know, is kind of the, the bottom line to that kind of gentle performance of of sympathy so um, yeah i mean absolutely critical race theory you know, is yeah. a problem for those who are who, who, who are not anti-racist uh, and who are, who were you know because it won't accept those kinds of those kinds of of uh yeah th- those kinds of momentary liberal reforms as which 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 will almost always roll back to some extent we won't accept those as 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 as, as signalling the end of of racism. So yeah, you know, I I, I would I I you know, I want to imagine a society that is genuinely post racial, but you know, it's what you know, Zeus Leonardo and 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 and, and Eduardo Bonacci and others have said is if you want to if you want a post racial society, you have to go through racism, you have to go through it, yeah. You have to dismantle it you can't just teleport yourself to the to the other side okay so yeah post-racial society great give me the real thing yeah not a kind of not a kind of cheap facsimile i
2: i think i'll just add a couple quick things i think in part that framing of crt that that um racism is permanent and permanent in this sort of infinite sense is a misunderstanding or a misread that that maybe many of we contributed to so this in the early writing there was this um, in education anyway you sort of had to list the tenets of Crt in any publication and among the tenets was racism is endemic yes and racism is Permanent. And I think that listing of those tenets without attention to really what I, I understand Derek Bell may be better now to have been doing, um, may have promoted this slight like a, a framing that's slightly askew. And I think what what is interesting is that what Derek Bell was really trying to draw people's attention to is that the the work and the success is in the struggle itself. And so, if the the work is measured by some um, completion or some outcome that fixes everything and that is immediate then there's no point because this is a long haul and it's a big struggle. And so I think part of uh, those tenets shifted away from what he described as kind of the, the spiritual work, really, again, that that the deep, longstanding generational struggle. And there's where I do see a connection, too, with the Black radical tradition. Um, I think, too, the argument that incremental change simply reproduces the institutions and systems is an important one. If we put that in conversation with abolition, for for instance, where um, there's, and, and many of you, maybe all of you have heard this, this sort of question that abolitionists will take up as they're engaging a reform. Does this reform entrench and make more permanent and more real prison, or does it support the conditions of life for people caught up in that without supporting the the realness or the the endurance of the institution itself? And I think in some ways in in CRT, um, I think about, various scholars engaging with rights. Rights are dicey because rights are something conferred by a state to human beings so they can withdraw and give and mediate. And yet rights are the only thing we might have to work with in this moment. So how do you work with rights without entrenching state sort of God authority? And I think that's one of those the sort of non-reformist reform is how are we getting toward a radical end without be having um, self-congratulatory, incremental, um, non, non-disruptive change. And so I think there is that in CRT, it's just maybe described more um, starkly than it is in perhaps, um, you know, abolitionist writing and, and work. And there might be room there again for that conversation to help see where SCRT is really doing that, really saying, well, of course we're in the law, we're in education, there's some reform involved, but that reform is not to say that the systems of power and the institutions as they are, are okay, they just need to be tweaked. They need to be radically overhauled.
0: Thank you, Sabina. thank you, Paul. Um, The next question, There's two questions that are interrelated um, that I want to pose to you both. How does an individual's positionality play into the study of race and advocacy against racism? For example, should white academics be able to lead inclusive and diversity initiatives in schools and universities as well? What about the challenge of not putting the burden on the BAME community? And I guess as well also the BAME student community as well because something you alluded earlier Paul about student partnership there's a lot of that that happens at LSE and, and then it's a huge burden on students as well so I open it to you both.
2: You want me to start? <laughs> You're keeping your microphone off. <laughs> okay, it
1: just, I keep going first so I thought don't, I thought don't <laughs> To the
2: we'll switch it.
1: <laughs> switch it up.
2: <laughs> I, I so embedded in that question is there are a couple of things. Lead, one is lead. Um, and I think back to Fray Limo, which I mentioned um, earlier in the opening remarks. The leaders, the initial leaders of Fray Limo didn't describe themselves through their position. Right? President, vice president, whatever. They describe themselves as the responsibles. And so I think there's there's a question about um, what it means to lead something. Does that mean to be to tell people what to do and how to do it? Or does it mean to be responsible to a community, to a history, to a future? So I think I, maybe I won't say anything more about that. And, and And then I think there's the importance of thinking about Um, Well, I'll give you an example We're we're talking and working right now in the school where I work about Black leadership, educational leadership traditions. And I know I just said that thing about leadership. So this is in in the context of an ed leadership program and um, Black curricular pedagogical knowledge traditions and t- talking and kind of <laughs> trying to build out an understanding that these are practices and traditions everyone needs to pr- so so teacher education shouldn't have an add-on grant for black pre-service teachers to be able to access this additional Body of thought and praxis, so this should be central. So, in some ways, the question also points to the fact that we're renormativizing or recentering any other kind of work. And and so, I wonder if the framework is this is the work. This is the work. Everybody's got to participate. Then, what are the collective very local community understandings about how people participate. Again, I would encourage people to consider identity in complicated ways and to read really read Stuart Hall um, and think about identification and to think about disidentification. Um, To read Fanon, to think about identity versus systems of thought and being and how those are are interacting in messy ways so that's sort of my non answer to that question maybe huh. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah I'll, I'll probably give give, a, give another non answer but I, I think this is a really kind of everyday example of you know, what, what, what Sabine was talking about a moment ago that, that, that within you know any, any form form of critical thought conversation is central you know you you, you Constantly sort of having conversations between things that might appear to be incompatible, but but, but uh, you know may or may not be. The, 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 the conversation, dialectic, these, these things are going on, and, and I kind of see on a very everyday level when we talk about black students being out. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. When I use the word black, so you you got to remember that I'm I'm, I'm very old. So, so sometimes when I use in my day, when we use the word black, that meant. Everybody, African, African Caribbean, Asian. I know some people aren't kind of keen on that terminology today, but um, so sometimes when I use the word black, I'm t- I'm, <laughs> I'm talking black brown, you know. So any anyway, um, uh, what I was, was going to say was was you, you know I can see particular faces of of students of color, you know, when we have this conversation about students being burdened with having to kind of lead and, 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 and change your know, institutions and, and it is it is very very difficult because when it comes down to that issue of, of what exactly do we, mean, do we mean by lead and there's this conversation on the one hand you know we as anti-racist educators are usually saying well on the one hand you know uh movements you know against racism anti-racist you know movements agendas you know, have to kind of come from people who are, who are who are racialized you know who were racialized in an oppressive way you know black and brown people people of color uh, and on the other hand we kind of say well no it can't always be you know the responsibility of your know, of, 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 you know, people of color to actually take on on this work and, and 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 there is a very difficult conversation uh there um and 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 and, and usually in practical terms it kind of has to be sort of you know, struggled out, you know, in individual cases, you know, but because on the one hand, I would kind of say, well, you know, no, you know, you know, people of colour have to be kind of leading, you know, the agenda. But on the other hand, I also want to say, you know, to my white colleagues in universities, you know, is, well, no, you know, the time now is for some of you to get up off your backsides, you know, and risk your careers and annoy your head of faculty, you know, by, by doing this work rather than waiting for your, 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 your black and brown colleagues to, to do this. And there, and there are there are some white colleagues who do that, but, but not, not many. So, yeah, one thing I would like to say to some of my white colleagues is, yeah, risk your careers, do it today, annoy people. It's something that you probably will have to do at some point if, if you want to do any kind of this work, you know?
2: I wonder, Paul, too, if this is happening there, and I, I don't know, but in the U.S., there's this just um, overwhelming sort of takeover of anti-racism, which is a long, 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 long standing practice to be psychological yeah. and to be about the psyches of white people, to be yeah. about white. Co- it's almost like the... the um, 21st century version of white privilege. Right? And it's re and and so when you talk to colleagues and students and say, well, you know, look at South Africa was doing anti-racist work and that was not about white consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. That was structural that was collective and if white people wanted to join then that that was a not a psychological membership, right? That was a commitment to the work that work was structural. And it was, again, it was about anti-subordination. And so I think there are models, again, it feels a historical, um, <clears throat> the way these things are being taken up and even how we wonder about the work is <clears throat> not maybe looking at how the work's been done and that we don't need to be psychologized um, and, and, that may be interesting to some folks but in terms of radical social change that we need to be drawing from those structural practices
1: yeah and and, and, and i think that kind of that kind of psychological attempt to, you know, to explain racism purely in terms of, and of course, racism does have a psychological dimension, but to try to actually reduce racism to a kind of psychological state. I mean, it's something that's kind of deeply embedded in, in thought here in 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 the UK also. And, and in some ways, I think we've taken a step back in, in the last few years, because that kind of psychological approach was very, very prominent in the 60s, parts of the 70s. And then we got to a stage where, you know, we, we were saying, you know, uh, in our various movements, no, 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 you know, racism is structural you have to understand racial in structural and institutional terms you know and again a lot of people took up that language even if they weren't entirely comfortable with it and over the last couple of years you know um unconscious bias you know has been the kind of crappy rebirth of that kind of attempt to sort of you know uh to box race racism up as a kind of psychological you know Heck a deal or, 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 or whatever. So, yeah, it, it, that's, that, that's that's kind of there, yeah, here. Yeah, definitely here as well. Yeah.
0: We have about three minutes left, and I just want to ask this final question um, from somebody in the audience. Um, and I think it's a good point to end on, actually. CRT clearly offers us some important tools for thinking through the historical and current conditions of white supremacy and racism. Does the tradition in the panel's opinion give us any obvious steers to guide anti-racist action? Thank you.
1: Um, I, I think, yeah. Again, you know, I, 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 I. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I don't. You know, I, I've never thought that critical race theory. yet, you know isolated from other forms of action and other traditions is is useful yeah. critical race theory has to be understood going back to my point at the beginning in that wider tradition you know of black atlantic thought and and struggle so you know it, it, it critical race theory doesn't cancel out other forms of analysis and other forms of struggle you know Stuart hall uh was not a critical race theorist, but you know, but, but, yeah, but we have to understand critical, we have to understand Stuart Hall, you know, you know was Angela Davis a critical race theorist? Yeah, but, but we have to, you yeah, know, so, you know, you know and CLR James was long dead before critical race theory existed. Yeah, so, so yeah, so, uh, and I, as, as I say, you know, what critical race theory does is it gives a kind of analytic base to suggest possible forms of action and possible forms of resistance you know, but it, it, it won't do the work for us, you know. Uh, we have to kind of work out what our strategies is, you know, what our strategies are, um, you know, using that analytical insight from critical race theory.
2: Yes,
0: <laughs> and thank you both
1: thanks to you, Sabina, and, and to Akila as well. Thank you. Thank you.
0: So thank you both. Thank you uh, to everyone that joined us this evening as well. Um, and I really, you know, great presentations, great discussion. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, there is a lot more information on the Eden Centre. I'm going to do that boring old talk at the end now where there's more information on the Eden Centre and on the Embrace website um, Also, we have posted into the chat as well links to both Sabina and Paul's works. Um, I encourage you all to also read around the the scholars that they have discussed this evening. Hopefully, once the recording is out, you'll be able to go back and and trace some of the people that they've spoken about this evening as well. Um, So, yeah, and please look out for further LSE events um, and embraces by any means necessary event series, which is being I hope, publicised very soon. So thank you, Sabina. Thank you, Paul. Thank you to everyone else, everybody at the LSE. Um, And, yeah, thank you very much, everyone. Bye-bye.